Hello and welcome to Behind the Bodega Door with me, Lawrence Francis. I've been out exploring Spanish bodegas, interviewing the owners, and we'll be bringing you their story here on my channel. Today, I'm telling you about Bodegas Sumaroca down in the Penedes region of Spain. When I visited them, I was struck by a couple of things. Their spirit of experimentation and the way that they were aiming to get the best out of the local still relatively unknown Jarello grape and adapt to climate change and the changing market forces. I'll start with their history of the region. So one of the things that came out was the isolation that Penedes felt under dictatorship. During this time, they, growers weren't allowed to access international markets, so ended up focusing on the big three local grapes, which is the Chardello, the Macaveo, and the Pareada, doing very good things and producing fine carvers. Something interesting happened when the borders were reopened again and they were able to access international markets is that they started using more international grapes. The problem being, of course, that the international market didn't know what Chardello was and, and wasn't as open, perhaps, as, as they are now to trying something new and different. So this saw, for example, in Sumaroca, they used to have seven monovarietals, uh, wines made from one type of grape. They now have only four. So if you like, within the region, there's been this sort of inward looking isolation. Things have opened up and they've expanded the range of grapes that they're using. And the trend is now back towards looking at the local grapes, looking at recovering grapes. We're looking, looking at making types of wine that cannot be found anywhere else in the world. And indeed, the Jarello grape doesn't grow anywhere else in the world. So why wouldn't you want to work and bring out the fullest expression of that? Recuperation of these grapes has led to a, a lot of experimentation and it's mainly been led by each producer on their own site and on their own scale. So really looking at bringing out the unique nature of each parcel of land. And for us as wine lovers, this is fantastic news because it means that we get to taste wines from different parts of the world that, that each have their own unique expression. The tale of the family I'd like to focus on is really the evolution of the estate, which was grown in three separate stages. So the first piece of land that was acquired where we started the tour was an old paper mill from the 16th century, surrounded by 25 hectares of land where the Pinot Noir for the top level Nuria Clavarol Cava is still grown. The site has got its own church, which is only for family weddings. And indeed, Merche is still being sent information by visitors and historians that she didn't know about the site and, and who may or may not have stayed there in the past. The second piece of land was to the south of, of the estate. We didn't get to visit that, but um, there's more information about that on the site that I'll be including at the bottom. This is uh, where I believe you can visit and where you can actually host events and weddings. The third and largest parcel is where I'll spend most time talking about. This was about 402 hectares and was acquired in 1999 from the Marcus of Bonestra. Uh, that's the equivalent of 600 or more football pitches, so it's a huge piece of land. Only around 200 hectares, so around 300 football pitches, is in production. The rest has been left to uh, habitat for wildlife and, and, and forest. The Marcus of Monistrol, when 
they were still owning the land and when they employed a lot of workers there had built a small community there was housing there was a church there was a town hall and, and there was a school that I got to see with my own eyes and the change really occurred when uh, the Marquis of Bonestrol decided to go away from growing their own grapes and go towards buying those in. The Sumaroka family is a large one. Merce has three brothers, seven cousins, and her uncle uh, is, is still very much active now into his 80s and he's very hands-on and offers a personal touch to whoever that he comes across. So you may get to see him should you tour the estate. Talking a bit more about the, the earth care, I thought it was really interesting to see a commercial concern actually then really taking that um, interest in the land and what was going on there. So as I mentioned, even going as far as clearing out caves and creating habitat for animals and encouraging animals to come onto the estate. Bees for pollination, using sheep to eat the grass and cycle the, the nutrients out and among the vines, studying biodynamic principles, the moon cycles, uh, the company's in its third year of organic harvest and even goes as far as making its own compost as well. These things are not just commercially good sense. They are, they're also, as an antidote to climate change, that's, the signs are, are really very apparent. When we toured around the vines, it was clear that there was already the inversion process going on within the vines where the leaves were changing from green to brown and yellow. This normally starts at the start of October, but it was already happening at the start of September when I was there. And this was as a result of the harvest being brought forward. The big festival in San Sorri Danoia is at the start of September. First week of September is usually when the harvest would take place. This is now taking place in August. So I think everything is, is changing and adapting to the, to the seasons. One of the things that Merche spoke about was in this now stress state, a lot of the older, more established vines are now having to search much further to find their water, passing different stratas of, of rock and earth to, to find their water. And this is what's, if you like, bringing in that minerality that you're seeing in a lot of the older vines. Trends and marketing. We spoke a lot about the price of carver compared to champagne. The very best carvers that they're producing can reach around 40 euros. And carver, on the whole, sells much cheaper than champagne. One of the trends that's taking place at the moment, led by producers among them, Sumaroka, is bringing out higher-end products at a higher price and giving the, the consumer what they want. We spoke about the biggest markets for carver in Europe being Belgium and the internationalization now that the top-level carver Sumaroka produces is super popular in China and I was informed just a few days after visiting that it's now been confirmed as the official carver of the National Theatre of Beijing. They brought out a carver which was targeted to the gay market as well called True Colours and if you go into a shop and you look for the carver with the pride colours you'll know the one that I mean. It's, it very much stands out on the shelf. The idea to do this came to them via a Swedish distributor. So again, as well as being inward looking when it comes to the grapes, from a marketing point of view, they can't afford to be inward looking and are taking on more suggestions from wherever they will come. 
Business has also opened out into a company selling foods. I saw mushrooms, tomatoes, and white beans all, all being sold by Sumaroka under the, the name of Cell Foods. Of course, being the head of Eno Tourism, we spoke a lot about who is actually making the journey out to the estate. A lot of international visitors, Chinese, Russians, a lot of them with their own interpreters in tow. The estate can look after people with English guides, so Scandinavians and, and Swedes and Finnish are finding it a, a very attractive um, place to come and visit. It's only 40 minutes from Barcelona and this is a great place to, if you like, break up a visit that you may have, uh, have in Barcelona. If you've been there three or four times, you can come out and, and see a different side of the Catalonia region. To take advantage of this and to give people something to remember, there's a lot of different activities taking place out there. And I just missed one of these activities that had taken place the weekend before where people were out picking grapes, they were you know, crushing them like they used to in the old days under, under feet. Uh, the offer of tourism changes quite a lot according to the time of year. So at this time of year, this being September harvest time, there's that fresh grape juice available before it gets turned into wine, that mosto, that can only be done at this time of year. There are fewer visits in winter, but uh, if you go during winter, you can actually see a different side of things where you're learning how to prune the, the vines and you're learning more about how they're looked after at that particular time of year. When Moche took the decision to do all the tours herself, including work in the weekends, that was not a, an easy decision. But again, they feel that that's important in terms of when you go to the estate that carries their name, you meet somebody from the family. It's not somebody who's been brought in and hired to do those tours. And Moche will always make uh, the time to try and come meet people when they're visiting. I was honoured that we opened a bottle of their top carver when I was there. So a few technical notes about this. So this is the Nuria Claverol Omentage. This has got 52 months in Criantha. That's almost five years sitting on its leaves in that bottle, getting those yeast flavors out. So on opening, it was very apparent the bubbles that are in there are very much more subtle. Uh, the milk notes, those yeast notes, were very much coming through from the Crianza. The production is tiny, it's only 6,000 bottles. It's certainly not enough to satisfy demand and most of that is being bought up over in China. There's a touch of Pinot Noir in there as well and the vintage that I tried was a 2011 which was disgorged uh, just last year. This particular carver is kept in that first parcel that I spoke about, only on site. The second, it was really interesting to contrast that with a rosé. So we tried the 20 months Crianza uh, Nuria Claverol Rosé um, immediately after. This was a much more fruity affair. It didn't have quite as much for me um, complexity in terms of the yeast notes and the milk notes that I spoke about earlier. I will be very interested to see the evolution of rosé here because Merche told me about the Jarello Rojo, the red variety of the famous Jarello grape that's being grown here now to in the future make rosé carver only from autochthonous grapes.
The next stop was to head out into the field to see how the estate is growing its grapes. It was explained to me that Penelope is a fantastic, unique zone to grow grapes, as they have protection from the Cordilleras del Norte mountains, which stop the cold air entering from the north, whereas to the south, they have the sea. At about one o'clock every afternoon, there's a reliable breeze coming from the sea, which keeps the vines ventilated and stops any buildup of fungus. As they don't irrigate, it's also good to be close to the sea for occasional rain showers. On our tour, we came across a, a local bodega owner harvesting by machine, and it was explained to me the process by which the machines pass through the middle of the vines, shaking the vines, and then collecting the grapes and all of the stems and, and taking them up into a container, the destemming needing to be done back at base. Now, it occurred to me that while hand harvest is valued by the consumer, it may not result in the grape being processed more quickly. Indeed, when you hand harvest, you have to remove the whole grape, not always better, as with the machine, the grape will arrive much more quickly back at the plant. While hand harvesting may be more prized, people perhaps willing to pay a premium for it, it may not result in a better product. So the question that had come up time and time again, which is better, Merche's response to that was, it depends. Back at base, we walked around the processing unit and walked through the, the process in some depth. So if you've ever wondered how carver is made and the different steps that it go through, this is the part for you. So under the weight of the grapes themselves, because there's these you know, huge, huge amounts of grapes being transported at a time, that some of them are already starting to split and produce the, the grape juice. And as that very first runoff is the highest quality and, and what goes into the top carver, it is something of a race against time to, to get those grapes back into the, into the production process. So the first thing that needs to be done is, is for that stem to be taken away. And I thought it was great that that stem is a base product for another spirit uh, known as called Orujo. So while the stems, when the stems are taken away and the grapes are all in the vat, uh, they, are, they are then squeezed and there's maceration, which is contact between the skin and the pulp to impart the color and the characteristics from the local grapes. Filtration is super important and getting a clean end product is basically what guides the whole of the carver production cycle. Because even a, a small bit of grape in your carver will influence the flavor. So once the grape juice has been filtered, it's maintained at five degrees so that the yeast that, that are naturally there from the skins don't start the fermentation process too early. Um, control is very much a key word here as well. Everything that takes place, every process that takes place is done on, under the control of the, of the winemaker. There's clarification that also takes part. So particles that naturally fall to the bottom are, are taken away. So every, every step is, is, has got a, a fail-safe element to bring out any extra bits that might have gotten into the, into the mixture. Wine is looked at parcel by parcel, so what they're left with is grape juice that has got the representation of each unique parcel where it was grown. So again, getting back to identification of what are the characteristics of the parcel and what can that give them. The next step is to 
make wine because after all the base of kava is just still white wine. The optimal temperature for alcoholic fermentation, 15 degrees, is, is maintained by outside um, influences in these, in these large stainless steel vats. Now the side products of fermentation, the heat, are heat, gas and alcohol. In this case, they only want the alcohol. So the heat is, is, is taken away and the tops of the, of the vats allow that, that gas to escape. I smelled some of this fermenting mosto being, being turned into wine. It looks like milk. There's a, there was a light foam that was on the head of this. When I smelt it, it had a very light amount of alcohol. After three weeks of alcoholic fermentation, the wine is ready. At this stage, there's also additional cleaning done to the wine to remove any dead yeast that, that may have gotten in there. Now, this is where the magic happens. This is where, where the white wine becomes its journey to becoming kava. So it's bottled for secondary fermentation. Secondary fermentation in the bottle is according to the method Champenois. So this is where the mixture of typically Jarelo, Macabeo, Pareada, and with yeast and sugar in the bottle are producing that secondary fermentation. The side effect of gas now doesn't have anywhere to escape, so it makes those bubbles in the bottle. Across time, the characteristics change. The bubbles become smaller and the yeast cells remain in contact, giving character to the kava, making it milky and giving it that, those bakery and brioche notes that a lot of people talk about. Sumodoka, interestingly, they only make brut nature, which means that they don't add any sugar into their kava at the final stage. The kava I saw has space for two and a half million bottles and all Sumorocco kava begins life there before being transported over to the bottling plant. Some kava also finishes its days over in that bottling plant because there's a, a, an identical uh, condition kava over there. I'll talk a little bit about the disgorging process as well because if you imagine you now have your kava, you have it bottled, you've got the corona cap on top which is like a beer cap but you need to get that out. You need to get the cap off, cap off to put in the, the cork that you, you probably know and love. But you also have another challenge in that you've got the dead yeast there, the yeast that have been working so hard to give you those bubbles that you don't need them anymore now. So they're surplus to requirements. Now how, this, how they usually um, approach those two problems is simultaneously. So what happens during the disgorging process is that the bottle is inverted upside down and the yeast, dead yeast fall to the neck of the, of the bottle. This is then the stage where that, those bottles are dipped into a briny solution uh, where that plug can be frozen and that can then be removed more easily. It, the way it's removed is by putting it right way up then and once the cap is taken off it's, it's under pressure from the gas underneath the, the frozen plug. So that will fly off and the very quickly the bottle can be topped up with a little bit of of wine and the cork that you know and love can be put on. Okay, finally is the geek out phase. So this is where I talk about what are some of the more technical things that I was shown and what are the things that I think I learned something from and I hope that you'll learn something from too. So I was taken down to an experimental finger planted with four varieties of grape. 
Cabernet-like was, was how Moche described it. And what they're hoping to do there is develop strains that are self-resistant to disease. And in order to do this, they purposely chose the worst spot in order to plant these vines. So this is the closest to the water, so there's um, a chance of mildew. It's where they had the worst airflow. That's where there's very little ventilation. So if these vines are going to get a disease here, they're going to is where they're going to get it quickest. I was shown vines that had caught infections from uh, Arrania rojo, which is red spider, tiny little red spiders that are, are crawling over them. The bodega has links with the local university, the Universidad Rovida y Virgili, and they have two different aims that they're looking at. One is to investigate the genetic and the DNA of vines from Japan, Afghanistan, etc. What's also being done at the same time is, is seeing how they adapt and, and, and how they grow in really what is a, a very inhospitable environment. The bodega has already produced a wine from three of these varieties and the results of this experimentation is going to be shared with the public. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I've enjoyed creating it. Please, please leave a message below. Let me know what you thought and leave a rating. Let me know if you thought this was a one, two, three, four or five star podcast. Thanks so much.